0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. I am your host Bill Brewster. This episode features Ryan O’'Connor of Crossroads Capital. If you have been fortunate enough to talk to Ryan, you will know that he is very well thought out and also can carry a conversation. so strap in and enjoy the ride on this one. I think it's a solid, solid pod is my host review, so I hope you grab yourself a cup of coffee and enjoy listening. This episode is sponsored by DeLupa. DeLupa not only has the world's longest ad read, but is also a fantastic partner. And they are my spreadsheet of choice when I am looking to get up to speed on a company or an industry. You can click through any cell and it takes you directly to the source. I find it to be incredibly valuable. I will read their official copy. You may need to refill the coffee after this one. I, I kid, Delupa, I love you guys, but this is a long read. Anyway, Delupa is founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity into the investment process. Delupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company-reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea gen. Analysts spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel and more time synthesizing in the minutes after the print. Bang! You could have been synthesizing that Google was going to sync on that print. Anyway, that's not actually in this copy. Back to the copy. DeLupa captures data from all company reported sources, including from footnotes, MDNAs, and investor presentations. DeLupa's data sheets include gap to non gap adjustments, guidance, and all company specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. DeLupa's Excel plugin can also update your existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. One click, folks. Bulge back at banks and major multi-managers are trusting DeLupa for use in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping their models up to date. Visit DeLupa.com forward slash business to create a free account and learn more about how DeLupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. I'm telling you, that is a read, but it is a heck of a product, it's a heck of a team. I like those people over there, they've been very kind to me, and I think that if you are looking for something that can save your team a lot of time and you value the accuracy and the ability to trace data to a source, it's worth giving Delupa a spin, so check it out. Anyway, as always, nothing in this show is investment advice. All of the information in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions, and do your own due diligence. On to the show. Have a good week, folks. The one and only Ryan O'Connor. What's happening, man?
1: What's going on, brother?
0: Not much. We have gone through technical difficulties to get to to cross the Rubicon of recording. I am excited about that. It was uh, almost a problem. <laughs>
1: Story of my life.
0: Well, a story of mine as well. Uh, a, slight, a slightly <laughs> better setup than another podcast that I have been known to be on occasionally. But uh, it's okay. Whatever. Mm-hmm. So what's good, man? What's going on with you?
1: Nothing. Uh, same old, same old. Trying to build the fun. Just got back from a, a long trip to Japan, which was... Well, what does is,
0: what is your trip to Japan entail? What does this look like when
1: you go to Japan. There was a lot of things. Uh, This time we went to go meet with a bunch of uh, Japanese corporates in the gaming space to try and confirm a a couple hunches in a few different ways. Primarily this trip was focused around the Tokyo Game Show and uh, trying to get developers to Give us insights into not just kind of uh, the larger space, but you know Japan as a country and the culture in general, and kind of use that to leverage on our behalf for our Nintendo SPV. So there were a, a lot of very kind of enlightening things of you know getting in the ground and, and talking with a lot of them. But uh, I'll give you one example, and it's funny you saw this in the news yesterday, I believe, with uh, the government basically coming out as part of its corporate reforms. And, you know, in this specific case, it was, you know, relating to compliance amongst various firms listed on the uh, Tokyo Prime Exchange. There's no other way to say it other than that they're basically entertaining shame tactics by naming names of who's not compliant.
0: So, can you take a step back and just like for people that haven't followed what's gone on with Japan, what was it, 18 months ago or so, there was like a real push? Like you mentioned the prime exchange. There's a number of exchanges yes. now, right? And you, you're kind of like relegated to a lesser exchange if you're not demonstrating some sort of uh shareholder focus. Is that a fair way to characterize what's going on?
1: Yes. The difference though between so many of the reforms in the past and kind of what began approximately 18 months ago is I think for the first time ever, Japan has put real teeth into these reforms, not only, you know, from a high level government perspective, but I would say in particular, like, for example, the court systems are on board. And I think this is largely in reaction or, you know, as far as the question is what's changed, it's really, you know, uh, a matter of necessity i mean given the demographic implosion going on in the place like if they don't improve corporate productivity and do what they need to do to make japan a attractive place to invest for you know foreign direct investment and the like they're going to be in real kind of existential trouble and so this you know kind of round of changes is kind of revolutionary in the sense that not only are there Big repercussions. I mean, you know, uh, with respect to things, all, you know, matters as it relates to corporate governance and capital allocation in general, there's real, like I said before, teeth to it where they are basically forcing compliance or you get delisted. And that's happening in a variety of ways. But one of the things we constantly heard when, you know, meeting with corporates and we met with a few other hedge fund managers in Japan while we we're there as well was, you know, related to, you know, kind of like, I don't know how to say it, but like the Japanese hive mind, and how important a reputation and community is and how that drives behavior. For example, when we were sitting with one manager, he had talked about how there was a company that they were invested in. And you have to think about being a CEO or a C-suite executive in Japan, it, it's not so much your pay in in a kind of in a vacuum that drives decision-making there. It's more the perks that come with being a CEO, having a driver, you know, being the big man in charge. And so part of the pressure, and you know, this is kind of a secular tailwind that has kind of inverted recently. And I think we're in the very early stages of it, but most Japanese corporate C-suite executives are much more concerned with being out of touch or out of alignment with what everyone else is doing. And so one of the things, you know, the, in this particular example, they were talking about, they had run a proxy and they had expected this company to do a very large buyback somewhere in, you know, proportion to what its largest competitor has done. So they came out with their annual, or not? The, I'm not sure it was their annual report, but their quarterly report, and they announced their plans to do so. But it was very disappointing, at least in terms of order of magnitude relative to what these investors were expecting, and more importantly, what their peer or their largest competitor had done. And so the stock dropped 20%, the proxy was coming up, and basically they reversed course and decided to up the buyback Approximately in line with the competitor there. And the manager was essentially talking about how one, a lot of the biggest fears, you know, relating to these executives is kind of not being in touch with what everyone else is doing. And so getting them to uh, kind of see the light for better or worse was ultimately a function of what their peers were doing and the fact that if they don't match that, you know, the chance that they get kicked out or replaced goes up exponentially. So, you know, you think about the prior 30 years, it was kind of the opposite, right? Why would, you know, a company start buying back and, you know, stock and-
0: and Oh, yeah, it's like a cultural shift here, where now if you're not returning capital to shareholders, you're getting a little shamed as opposed to growing cash on the balance sheet. Exactly,
1: exactly. And so this, it's a very subtle thing, but I think it's a- a lot of what we do is, you know, you could call it inflection investing, uh, but our focus is really on businesses undergoing value-unlocking change in, you know, both at the micro and call it the macro level. When it comes to investing in Japan in particular, for the first time in decades, being, uh, employing Western government practices around disclosure, around capital allocation and the like, instead of being you know, kind of the uncool, contrarian, unorthodox, you know, you kind of have to be a maverick in that respect, or at least you would have had to have been in the, say, the last three or four decades. That's actually starting to reverse. And the momentum behind this change is accelerating. And and you see that with the, uh, uh, there was a, I don't know if it was an FT article, um, but, you know, the other day, they basically reported on how the government is you know resorting to shame tactics to get people on board and to kind of start doing the right thing so Japan can start to benefit from foreign investment, which has essentially fleed the country relentlessly for decades. So
0: why now? Like I, I remember we were talking about this at Berkshire, which as background for people that don't know, um, you may have read, what you might think is a Google short paper, but it's not a Google short paper and you will learn why. But um, but I I pinged Ryan after reading that paper and he was like, dude, we had dinner at Berkshire and I was like, oh, thank God it's you on the other end of this. I would love <laughs> to have you on the pod. And, and you said, well, I would love to come on the pod. And then we've had fantastic conversations in between. So I'm very, very happy that that paper came out and that I read it. Um, because I, we kind of like lost touch (laughs) and, and we were talking about this for like that night. And, um, I know Dan, you know, Dan had been talking to me for a while about this and I, I'm not a hundred percent clear on the why now, other than the pain point has just kind of hit this threshold where it's time to change. But it like, was there a catalyst behind that or is it just time festering a wound that just needs to be healed or something?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was the kind of relentless capital outflows. I mean, it's semi incredible, but when you normalize, for example, returns on capital as a as opposed to you know uh, looking at uh, valuations or looking at returns on equity on a return on capital basis, Japan's corporations, you know, as a whole are have essentially reached parity with the United States. Now, the ROE looks a lot lower because of kind of the ludicrously large balance sheet, you know, cash on the balance sheet and the like, but...
0: And they haven't shrunk the denominator as much, right?
1: Yes. And so it's the cheapest it's ever been and far and away the cheapest developed nation in the world. And so, you know, I think fundamentally speaking, there's a a huge reason to invest in Japan kind of just based on valuation alone and the fact that it's trading at... You know, I saw a Big Mac, you know, based on the Big Mac index, you have basically uh, Japan is cheaper than a, a wide swath of color called, you know, Southern Asian countries that are closer to uh, what was, say, developing markets than developed. So
0: now is is this a demo? I mean, I understand that there is the corporate governance side of it. If I wanted to take the devil's advocate side of this argument, would I say, well, it's a demographics and a lack of growth issue? Yes. Okay.
1: Yes. I mean, you know, and it's, I mean, if you look at the demographics, time is fastly running out. I mean, I, one of the things that someone told me while we were there was something like a third or more of the country right now is 65 or older. Jeez. Yeah. So they got to do something. Otherwise, I don't know. China's just going to move in to, you know, kind of revitalize, you know, not only the country's capital markets and capital invested in the nation but also to attract immigration and to fill that plug. Because other than, you know, if they don't do something and they don't do it now, it's going to be a huge problem and sooner than I think most people expect. So I think their decision to enact these reforms and to do it with real teeth was a kind of a brilliant move by the government and the Japanese people. And it's going to take time for the call it the general narrative, uh, you know, the cultural reality in Japan to fully shift more towards a Western point of view. But I don't know. Initially, when you look at, you know, you see KKR. Uh, let's see here. I mean, Buffett, Steve Cohen, um, you know, I could go on and on.
0: Ryan O'Connor.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't put myself in those categories. But you know when when all Yet. of these brilliant investors are all moving to Japan uh in size, establishing family you know uh wings of their family offices there, but you know really kind of diving deep, you know I think you should at least from my perspective, it's like it's time to pay attention and i I think like a lot of things, whether it's you know say Nintendo in particular, the kind of narrative that just won't die despite it being kind of objectively ludicrous. Uh, at this point in its business model transformation, that it's a hit-driven cyclical. I think it takes a, a fair amount of time for, narratively speaking, for people to wake up and realize that not only is Japan serious about kind of getting rid of all of the insular kind of protectionist measures, you know, like the share cross holdings that were put in place over decades as a protectionist measure.
0: Okay. So what are what are these? Because I think it ties into your Nintendo thesis, unless I'm completely off base. No, uh,
1: it, it does. I mean, in the sense that a lot of Japanese corporates, you know, so for example, Nintendo has, owns a lot of the stock in banks, particularly the Bank of Kyoto, and they own stock in Nintendo. And Nintendo owns stocks and a lot of its kind of key partners, like Bandai Namgo or uh, Square Enix is, you know, another example. But- Part of the reason this was done and and ostensibly, you know, a lot of it is still maintained because of kind of call it strategic tie ups, which, you know, makes sense. And on that basis, I have, you know, no problem with those shares kind of continuing to be held. But at the end of the day, for example, Bank of Kyoto is is an interesting example. So this was a, a while ago, but, you know, I was kind of looking through various Japanese small caps, And in a new deck from the Bank of Kyoto, they basically line up, kind of spoon feed it to you, which you know kind of shocked me. But they had all of these equity holdings on their kind of marked at book or cost, if you will, uh, when it comes to their book value. And a lot of these equity holdings were established decades ago. I mean, Hmm. one anomaly, you know, one kind of broad analogy, excuse me, uh, would be something like Sears or something that had bought its real estate and booked it at cost, in many cases, five, seven decades ago, if not before that. And so its carrying value has basically no reflection whatsoever on its current value. You know, if they were to liquidate those shares today, they would be done at a huge premium to where they were marked. Well, Bank of Kyoto was trading at, you know, let's call it, it was something like six or seven times depressed book value tangible book value but they came out with a presentation that basically spoon-fed you that for example their equities that, that were held were basically in aggregate worth more than the entire book value of the company so in unwinding these crossholdings tangible book value basically explodes higher because it was masked based on the accounting conventions that had been used historically and last i checked it was still trading at a big discount to the value that was going to be unlocked from you know, monetizing those equity holdings. It creates kind of a, uh, call it a compound margin of safety or a double layer of safety. As they unwind their cross holdings and start to invest productively and their ROE increases, you should go from you know, not only a depressed multiple of book value, but you know, something close to a premium or you know uh, book value plus if you want to put it that way but so that is a kind of a very simple kind of average explanation of how unwinding cross holdings and and kind of cleaning up their cap structures and you know all of this stuff should provide considerable torque to japanese equities in general with nintendo i think the issue or at least the hidden value there is all about the Pokemon company um, and the fact that it's truly, like we can get into all the details related to this, but, you know, I think they have at an absolute minimum, a 50% look through economic stake in the Pokemon company. I actually think odds are, you know, their true ownership is much higher. Obviously they own the patents and the trademarks, but you know, there's no doubt that Nintendo controls the company, Um, but it's valued at zero. On the balance sheet and so when you think about it kind of high level i mean i think this might come off as hyperbole but i think nintendo owns what is arguably if not the most valuable hidden asset in the world is certainly you know i don't know about ever but you know i've never seen anything quite like it and this gets into a whole kind of uh rabbit's hole of getting into japanese accounting metrics but You know, just as one thought off the top of my head, uh, you know, would you believe that in Japan, if you're a private company and you own a hundred percent of a subsidiary, so it's not like it's non consolidated or anything like that, but you do not have to report the associated revenue and income from that subsidiary? Which I don't know about you, but that makes my head explode thinking about why. They could get away with not reporting, you know, uh, the revenue and cash flow of subsidiaries that they own 100% of.
0: Well, they, they, they do have to report the cash that comes into them, like in the form of a dividend, correct?
1: Oh, So, I mean, no.
0: If no, then that's, that's interesting. Wow.
1: Yes. No, they don't. Huh. So, you know, and I'll, I'll give you an example of just how, you know, their public... Financials or people that usually tout around, you know what they have released, and so just to give you an idea of how ludicrous they are.
0: Wait, okay, hang on, hang on. Just humor me for a minute. Sure. Poke- Pokemon uh, Go is released. Nintendo owns arguably fifty percent of that business. It shows no of the re- none of the revenues, none of the costs. Where in America it would show all of the revenues and all the costs. It would it would be consolidated. Yes, and. On top of that, if there's a dividend paid from the Pokemon Company to Nintendo, I mean, I guess that it, it would probably be in the cash flow statement, right? I mean, otherwise you couldn't reconcile the cash.
1: Well, so what you get with, you know, the Pokemon Company, so uh, basically the way it works is Nintendo gets all of the, call it, rest of the world sales on Pokemon video games flow through Nintendo's financials. Okay. But 30%, i.e. all of the Pokemon software sold in Japan, is the Pokemon companies, which is not a Nintendo's financials, nor is, you know, their sprawling web of joint ventures, you know, their ownership of uh, the Pokemon centers, which are ludicrously successful, uh, you know, kind of restaurants where you have to, you know, last I checked, it was like a the in Tokyo, was like an eight-month delay by the time, you know, before you could actually get a seat to eat in one of them. I mean, if, if just that part of it was traded hmm. to the United States, it'd probably be worth a half a billion in public markets. You have JVs and other video game companies. The digger you deep, the kind of more mind-blowing it goes. But the only thing that is reported publicly uh with respect to TPC, which I'm just going to call the Pokemon Company for short, is, you know, they basically have... Released and I think this is in part because they're forced to because of global licensing data that you know allows one to kind of triangulate essentially what they earn. But so in those financials, you know, if you go back, I think they've started to uh, you know their net income shown has started to grow a little bit larger in the last year and a half, two years. But over the prior two you know, twenty years before that, I think they had shown something like five or six hundred in net income in total over that 20 year period. Well,
0: five or 600, what million?
1: Uh, yes, correct. Okay. Uh, you know, okay. So now let's just think about this through a basic smell test. So what we know is that, you know, because it's the most valuable entertainment franchise in the world, at least based on, you know, kind of gross sales, and you look at their merchandise licensing revenue. So, you know, they've done about, give or take a hundred billion over the prior 20 years in gross merchandise sales. So the the average royalty from talking to, you know, people that used to work with Pokemon and, uh, you know, variety of sources, usually is, call it 10% of whatever they sell. So, you know, if you're thinking about top line revenue, just from merchandising sales alone, you're looking at, you know, let's just call it to be simple, you know, 10 billion in revenue. Now, I don't know a merchandise licensor uh, in the world that is successful on any kind of level uh, that doesn't have operating margins of, let's call it, fifty percent in the ballpark. I think that's a fair approximation. So, you know, what are we talking about here? That's five billion in operating cash flow. Just basic sanity test that the Pokemon company should have earned over the prior twenty years, and you know, divide that by twenty. And essentially they should have made just from merchandise licensing, you know, in and of itself, 500 million a year, uh, every year for the last 20. And yet, you know, over that prior 20 year period, they're reporting that- Wait,
0: hang on, hang on. Walk me through this math again. You said 5 billion, right?
1: Yes. So divide 5 billion by, here, I'll do it with you.
0: Yeah. We got 5 billion by 20 years. You got 250 million a year. Right, so- And then we're talking like a 50% operating margin.
1: Well, so that's that is the margin, uh, you know, okay. 250 million in operating cash flow each year for 20 years. So okay. you know, Nintendo or excuse me, TPC in the you know, financials that people point to prior to uh, I think it was last year, if you were to go back the previous 20 years, had made something in the line of let's call it five, six hundred million in total over those prior 20 years. So this is ludicrously preposterous on its face. Like this is clearly not the correct numbers. and And then the question becomes, how can that be? And I think one of the big answers is because they are not required as a private company to consolidate any of their sprawling interests, you know, into reported numbers, at least reported numbers publicly. I mean, so you know it doesn't pass the smell test based on the merchandise licensing that we know is approximately correct over the prior twenty years. It includes no value to the cash cow that is the software uh, revenue and profit they earn year in year out from Pokemon games. It includes no value for their joint ventures and various video game uh, devs and, and whatnot. It includes no value from TPC, its restaurants. I mean, it's quite the rabbit hole as you start to go down it.
0: So, what does that look like for you? Like, what? How do you start to go down this rabbit hole? Like, were you? interested in nintendo because you like games and you started to look into this and you thought to yourself holy crap there's like a ton of hidden assets here or like how did you start to unpack something this opaque
1: so you know it was really kind of a byproduct of the diligence process at least diving into the balance sheet side of it i mean you know for one example as i'm going through one of their subsidiaries was called the entertainment company of america or something along those lines and. You dig a little deeper and you realize, oh my God, that's their stake in the Seattle Mariners. But I should be clear that from the beginning, the investment thesis with Nintendo was always about the underlying transformation of its business model. And, you know, all of the kind of hidden assets and, you know, the balance sheet stuff was always kind of a free option in terms of eventually it getting unlocked. But as I dug in and a lot of the dots started to connect in terms of the transformation of its business and the implications of that. That was what, you know, was kind of like the uh, the insight or, the, you know, call it the grand epiphany that got me, basically started me down a road where I just lived and breathed Nintendo for months. But, you know, as part of that process, you start to dig into the balance sheet. And what I found there, particularly relating to the Pokemon company, was something that I just uh, it wasn't a part of the initial kind of uh, series of things that made me dive in initially. But you know, the more I sat and thought and reflected about it, and you know, kept digging, the more I realized that you know, if there could be some way to unlock this value, uh, or let's just keep it simple, just create price discovery, what an incredible free option that is. I mean. Me and a lot of my friends, we joke when it comes to the kind of massive optionality embedded in Nintendo as free option number 4,624 because, you know, they're just so numerous. There's so many ways to win here. It's kind of silly.
0: Can I, I, I'm going to double click that to use the terminology because one of the things that you and I talked about when we were on the phone was you mentioned, what 08 did to you. And, and I know that you're talking about free options on the upside, but what you said to me was that 08 made you extremely downside focused and very cautious. And I'd love for you to just kind of take a quick tangent and talk about what that period did to you as an investor and why you are so downside focused. Because I personally think it's interesting that Nintendo has grabbed you like it has And you perceive there to be the upside that you perceive there to be, and yet you're also so downside focused. Like it's the combination of those that I think is very unique here.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think to put it simply, that is absolutely what makes Nintendo in particular one of the most incredible mispricings, especially in context of its qualitative attributes that I'd ever seen. And, you know, related to this, you know, uh, we're concentrated investors. You know, this is a 25% position for us. You know, and one of the angles, you know, of running a concentrated book is it makes the thought of, you know, fundamental risk or downside, I mean, extraordinarily unattractive. I mean, I can't tell you how many funds that have run very concentrated that, you know, uh, letting up their discipline on the qualitative side or the downside protection side that basically undoes them. And so to get to your specific point, One of the things that was, above all, the most formative thing that has ever happened to me in my investment career, and I honestly can't even conceive of me being the investor I am today uh, without it, was, you know, basically coming of age in the financial crisis. And what I mean by that is, you know, going into it, I had already kind of fallen in love with investing. Uh, You know, I remember right around this time, uh, uh, my boss coming in and seeing me read, you could be a stock market genius and throwing it in the trash. You know, he did it for the best of reasons, but you know, he uh, was basically like, you know, you know, you're not running money. There are better times to do this. Um,
0: so, wait, so what was he saying? He's like, that green black guy is a has been. <laughs> this, this book is garbage. <laughs> no one's gonna know about that guy in ten years.
1: Uh, I mean, you know, he he was more like. You should be focused on, on other things, uh, you know, versus, you know, this kind of thing. But, you know, the point is I was, by this point, I think I was, you know, a pretty good analyst. But, you know, frankly, I had no idea the, you know, shifting sand beneath our feet when it came to the leverage in the system. So many elements of what happened in 2008, you know, call it summer of 2007, I, I really had no underlying comprehension of and so when the financial crisis happened uh and while i think i would have done a little bit better than say the s p you know at the end of the day it split my mind you know there were a variety of things i remember one of the first stocks that i found very early you know that right out of college was brookfield asset management and you know this is me just i'm just going to use simple numbers here but i invested in 2003 and 2004 and so you know Fast forward three years later and it's done spectacularly. I think the we'll call it NAV is forty to forty-five dollars a share. This is one of the highest quality companies, you know, on the planet. And with one of the most impressive track records, you know, forward looking, had a long runway of, you know, high return reinvestment. You know, but the bottom line was a very high quality company. And if you would have told me that Brookfield could trade, you know, its NAV would be 40. And it could trade to six. I couldn't conceive of something like that happening. And so that's just one example of a successive series of things that happened where it taught me that whatever price and value is, you know, when things break, anything can happen. And that ended up kind of searing risk aversion into my soul in a way that I guess just fundamentally changed me. You know, when I go back and you, you hear about Graham, for example, Starting heading into the depression and basically losing his shirt, and how that was the impetus or, you know, call it the origin story that created the discipline of value investing. I.e., from Graham's perspective, he wanted to know was there a kind of a systematic strategy or a way to have invested in 1929 where you would have preserved capital or better yet, you know, actually made money through this? kind of, you know, unprecedented disaster. And that's where you get, you know, the net net working capital, you know, strategy, literally, you know, in a very meaningful way, value investing was born because of the experience that Graham went through with the, you know, Great Depression. And in a lot of ways, that's what I needed myself to, one, to know that I know nothing, two, to you know, check your downside 10,000 ways from other, you know, in 10,000 different ways, kill the idea constantly. But it just changed me in a way that I think if I'm very, very lucky for, um, because going through that type of thing, you realize anything can happen in the short term. And you should, you know, while you can't predict the future, you can prepare. And so When it comes to Nintendo, you know, we'd never taken a a position at cost, I think larger than 12% prior to this, but it was that just uncanny, almost unreal combination of highly predictable, visible upside, given, you know, how most of the underlying earnings engines that are transforming Nintendo's business model are highly predictable. Looking out, if you're thinking about medium term earnings, you know, earnings power two to three years from today, you have that in spades. And for what we do, predictability is an incredibly important part of our process. On the other hand, not only would the transformation of its business take it from kind of a hit driven cyclical to a, you know, something closer to call it a, a secular growth juggernaut. There is the downside protection element, which is, you know, there call it 10 to 15 billion in cash. And then all of the various hidden assets on its balance sheet that in combination are, almost worth, you know, the, what I would say is including the Pokemon company, the entire current enterprise value of the business today. And so when you're concentrated, let's just put it this way. uh, uh, You need something that is kind of the perfect balance of value and growth. I mean, you know, I think pulling those two apart is not really doable. I mean, growth is a component of value, but, you know, for this purpose, it was just... Not only were there multiple ways to win, but thinking about any realistic future scenario where one could permanently lose money, given the cumulative weight of their earnings power and asset value, is about as close to impossible as, as it gets. I mean, you look at their cash balance, it's diversified across currencies. You know, Nintendo's kind of a natural hedge against currency inflation or deflation in Japan, given, you know, the majority of its business comes from the rest of the world outside of Japan. But a lot of things about it make it this very unique combination of both you know, incredible downside protection and very predictable upside based on, you know, a business model transformation that I think we're kind of in the middle of. But a lot of the most important things that should permanently shift not only the narrative, but, you know, the multiple. And, you know, to be clear, Nintendo doesn't need any multiple expansion to do extraordinarily well going forward, but I don't think you know the hit driven cyclical narrative can be credibly denied past the point of the switch to, which I think is kind of imminent, and we can dig into that later but
0: so when you're coming up with this thesis, what is it uh some of the parts analysis are are often it seems not realized right so to what extent does Japan's change in corporate culture enhance kind of your I guess you know what I'm saying, like give you comfort in the fact that this may actually get realized as opposed to just being a you know a bunch of assets that are sort of trapped as they were for the last however many years, yeah it unless my characterization is wrong, I'm not you know
1: so both things are true in that the downside protection from you know the asset value and all of that is or the hidden assets is real, and you know when I think about conceptually. The downside. I absolutely include them in that analysis. Now, when it comes to you know thinking through the price targets and where the business should trade, I assume they're all worth zero. And you know you can really hard, especially given their incremental changes and in, in their own evolution with respect to capital allocation and and capital returns. You know they've bought back roughly I think eleven percent of their shares over the last ten years and. I think post-Switch 2, you're going to start to see them shrink the float rapidly because, you know, uh, the cash is piling up so fast, they don't have any other use for it. Um, Let's just put it that way. So where what you're talking about comes in, I think is important in a couple ways, uh, not essential to the thesis, but, you know, certainly a nice, you know, call it another free option is in many ways. Nintendo is the best of corporate Japan, you know, we call it its national champion. And when you are in that position, and, you know, the entire country, the government, you know, is for society's sake, you know, and, and this is important to think about it from a local Japanese perspective, being in alignment with what the culture and, you know, the government, the court systems, you know, this kind of big push to uh, reverse the policies of the past towards something approximating um, Western corporate governance standards, that I think Nintendo is the natural standard bearer of that flag. You know, and I think that if Nintendo, you know, doesn't follow suit, and in fact, I think they've been very early in kind of leading this charge. Um, but, you know, they have call it emotional or cultural reasons to be the standard bearer of this kind of new era of corporate government that, you know, is not necessarily, doesn't sit on the shoulders of lesser kind of Japanese corporates that aren't so synonymous with Japan and corporate business as a whole. So, you know, I think it's a tailwind. I think it's an attractive tailwind. Do we really need that for the stock to be a home run for me or not at all? But it is a nice thing in the grand scheme of things to have everything moving your way in that regard.
0: Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It's interesting because, you know, it, it, it appears from the outside looking in to be such a, such a change that I guess it's going to be interesting to see whether or not the entire country can collectively change its behavior. And that would be a really neat societal sort of a experiment to watch or will be. It, it won't, you know, it's not even a, a maybe it's going on.
1: Well, I mean, you kind of na- hit the nail on the head of why we wanted to be on the ground, because you can palpably feel it, especially meeting with we met with Bondi, we met with Square Enix, a variety of the publisher of, of Elden Ring, um, a lot of these Japanese corporates. This is very much on the top of their mind. Now, it's Japan. So whatever you think, you know, this value unlocking change would take place here in, you know, the West, just you know, as a general rule, assume it's gonna take five times Add a few than years. That. <laughs> um yeah. but, you know, the the tanker is turning and moving in the right direction. And I think all of these cultural inflection points will accelerate as this turn starts to gain momentum. That in in another sense, they're kind of being uh, forced to. I mean, you know, that's part of the power of having the government and the court system so well aligned here uh, and why you've seen, you know, firms like KKR and all of the beginning of of all this you know uh, increasing foreign direct investment in the country is because the government nor the court system is going to save these companies anymore. So if you're a PE and, you know, I think the KKR guys talked about how Japan reminds them of the US in the 50s and 60s towards the the tail end of the conglomerate wave. I mean, just, uh, you know, if I was king of capital allocation in Japan, I mean, it is absolutely mind boggling the value you can create simply by just doing basic common sense things like buying back stock beneath book value and, and just productively using your resources to grow the value of the business. And through that, you know, the value of, the Japanese corporate sector in lockstep.
0: Now, when I pull up Nintendo, I look at it and I, I might be wrong, but it looks like it trades at like roughly a 5% free cash flow yield. So what is it that I'm not seeing in my screener that you're seeing? And I know some of the answers and, and maybe a lot of the answer is these hidden assets.
1: Yeah, so, so forget about the hidden assets for now. Let's just think of them as all worth zero. I think that is makes it kind of easier. You know, if you add in the cash, I think the free cash flow yield is better. But or you back it out. So
0: yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, you are definitely correct. Yeah, it's twenty
1: five percent of the market cap. So on an EV to EBIT basis, it is you know much cheaper.
0: Yeah, it's like 10 times ish trailing.
1: Yes. Uh, I mean, that I mean, there's a lot of ways you can think about how crazy cheap this is. But, you know, just one quick one. I mean, the Microsoft Activision deal, this actually relates to the change ahead, just closed at what, 75 billion. And, you know, to compare Activision's assets, the Nintendo's, I mean, is ludicrous. Uh, Yet it just got bought out by Microsoft at call it approximately twice what Nintendo trades at, despite Nintendo being, I think, hands down the premier, you know, video game business in the industry, uh, far and away the best IP, however you want to try and slice it, I think, you know, Nintendo is the crown jewel of the video game space. And in fact, in these recent leaks from the Microsoft trial, Phil Spencer himself uh, basically makes exactly that point and talks about how, you know, somehow he could get Nintendo to cross the line and sell themselves that it would be a career defining moment. So this isn't necessarily a secret, but you you just kind of, if you want to think of this from its strategic acquisition value, whether that's Microsoft or Disney um, or Apple, I think we're in the range of a quarter trillion, (laughs) you know, on the low end. So there's a kind of a quick blurb on the margin. I think
0: Comcast is a more logical landing place.
1: Well, that's also, you know, I mean, given all of the various... Tie ups with Universal, and uh, that would definitely be that.
0: Yeah, you got animation competence, you got park competence, you got a CEO that's looking to transcend scale.
1: Yep. Well, I mean, when you think about it from a, uh, the ability to monetize under monetized IP, the only comparable to Disney is basically Comcast, you know, i.e., Universal.
0: They're very good at what they do. They are. Very good at what they do. They
1: are. They're spectacular.
0: And I know they got they got partnerships with Nintendo, so it just kind of makes sense. I mean, the, the the recent movie was very good, I thought.
1: I mean, you know, a sign of things to come. So, well, let's here. Let me take a step back and kind of walk through. You know, I, I'm trying to do it kind of three parts, but you know, Nintendo's past and basically the key to well, let's call it the future and. I can walk through kind of our base estimates, but I'll, I'll walk through kind of the optionality.
0: Why don't, why don't we just keep it high level? And, you know, if anybody wants to reach out to you, they can get your estimates and stuff. But sure. I, I think keeping it like what, you're, what you see in the future and why you think that maybe it's undergone this business transformation that is no longer sort of like a console-based, hit-driven business would be uh, helpful.
1: Sure. Okay. So let's talk about the things that are kind of not uh, discounted in the stock price. And you know what these forward-looking changes, most of which will come in part with the launch of the switch two, and you know what each of these pieces is worth that are not included in that ten times to Ebit figure uh, that you just discussed. So the first one I'd say is mean reversion in its first party software slate. So Nintendo obviously makes most of its money. At least historically speaking, through its first party games. And if you're to look at the first five years of the Switch's life, you see that, you know, they published on average, call it approximately 15 first party games a year. Well, uh, two years ago, uh, I think they released four, four or five. And then uh, last year, I believe it was three. So basically, you have this massive drop off in call it normalized number of kind of hit games that nintendo releases as a first party from 15 to 3. well the logic behind that you know very simplistically speaking is that nintendo i think had initially planned to begin sitting on games about 8 to 12 months prior to the release of the switch 2. uh and this makes kind of all the sense in the world uh, for why but it you know kind of carpet bombing, as we stand today, we're kind of on the eve of the first major iterative upgrade of the Switch platform, and that is the Switch 2. And so by basically taking 8 to 12 months and kind of stockpiling all of these marquee game franchises to kind of carpet bomb into the first 24 months of the transition from the Switch or the OG Switch, Switch 1, whatever you want to call it, To the Switch 2 is, you know, strategically very smart because it helps smooth out any transition between console changeovers. And Nintendo has, from the beginning of this business model transformation, you know, consistently reiterated that stability between console changeovers uh, is, you know, basically 100% where we're focused on. Well, so, okay, why does this matter in terms of what's not kind of discounted in the price today? Well, so... For example, when I released our latest quote-unquote book on Nintendo, uh, that was a little over a year ago, maybe closer to a year and a half ago at this point, the active user base or active playing users, uh, which is a KPI that Apple uses and you know is far and away, I think, the most important KPI when it comes to Nintendo's case, because what is it? It's the amount of people on your ecosystem or your platform that are buying and purchasing games. Well, shocker! When all of a sudden Nintendo's bread and butter, i.e., its first-party games, you know, kind of falls through the floor in terms of the release slate, the tie ratio, which is you know the average amount of games a active playing user will buy per year, uh, fell through the floor and dropped from call it uh, an average of three, three and a half for those first five years to two, and I think it was one point eight last year. I guess the point is initially it was planned to be an eight to twelve month Kind of lull in the software release slate, well, because of a delay, and you know I can talk about the reasons why I think this delay happened, and you know the switch was pushed into next year. You have that impact to its earnings from software. There's a double whammy here, in which I mean that you know this period of of kind of lower software yields was supposed to be 12 months. They pushed hardware out, which means they had to put you know they couldn't release all the games that they had set up for the switch to that created this double whammy effect where, you know, in a period where the active user base grew from, you know, I think when I released the letter it was at 98 million today, it's at 116 million, uh, at least the last time they reported, uh, I think by the time the switch 2 is is launched in April or May of next year, the active user base will be call it 125 million plus. So we're talking nearly a thirty million delta in active users between when they started this period of their first party software releases dropping to today. So this creates this massive kind of embedded operating leverage effect, where, as you know the active base or active playing users continues to grow, and Nintendo starts to release or return to a normal software pipeline, you know that it had in the past or, prior to you know deciding to sit on these games, you have a multiplier effect that I don't think people appreciate whatsoever in terms of just the sheer magnitude of what that's gonna look like. And I think in Q1, we got a preview of that with the release of Tears of the Kingdom. I mean, this was a game that I expected to do 20 million for the full year, and it ended up doing 18 million in basically a month. Which, you know, is somewhat mind blowing, but this is important because this is the first major, call it first party key franchise that Nintendo had released in roughly two years. So I think when you look at kind of the blowout numbers where they did 40% of the full year guide and operating profit in Q1, which, you know, kind of says it all. But that's a preview of what's going to happen when they, you know, start to release, call it three to four system sellers, plus a Pokemon game every year going forward.
0: So I, I see fiscal year 23, I'm in the Dilupa machine here. Okay. I've got 429 million or, uh, yeah, I'm looking at millions, not billions, yeah, of operating profit and then 185 just here in Q1,
1: Yeah. So yeah, I believe three and a half billion in operating profit was the full year guide. So they did, I'd have to pull up my numbers, but yeah, it's approximately 40% of the full year guide in a single quarter.
0: Wow, all right. I'll cut my comment that may or may not be right, but I, I, I sort of, okay, so when I'm looking, I mean, I'm just like kind of like looking at the numbers here and what I feel like people are seeing optically is you've got user growth, Without commensurate sales growth. So the the rebuttable presumption becomes, well, are these users getting less and less engaged, right? And what you're saying is that it's a, a lot more nuanced than that conclusion.
1: Yes. You have to understand what is driving the backward looking numbers. Yeah. Kind of a key to what we do is, you know, when I talk about inflection investing, it's I want to invest in situations where we not only have a material edge, but where the future and the past look incredibly different, if you will, and kind of leveraging those insights kind of for our own bottom line. And so in this case, you'd have to break down, especially with Nintendo's financials, uh, look at software sales. Um, And the, the more incredible data point that I'd point to you is that Nintendo's business historically has been primarily driven by its games. The last two years, the amount of games it has released has dropped through the floor, you know, in terms of games per year. Nonetheless, if you look at software sales, despite this incredibly depressive effect, uh, which was compounded by the needs to delay the release of the Switch 2, you have a scenario where, you know, I think the far more remarkable thing is that software sales have remained flat despite the complete collapse of what most people would view as the primary driver of their earnings, i.e. the amount of games it released per year. Nonetheless, it has remained stable and stayed flat despite that. And so in doing so, it's kind of masked the hidden operating leverage when business gets back to usual and Nintendo starts to get back to releasing 15 titles a year along with its big system sellers versus you know five and three the last two years. It shouldn't be a shocker that people that buy a system, I think engagement has remained strong because of NSO and other things. But, you know, the fact that people buy less games when, you know, a tiny fraction of the games that are normally released in any given year, I don't think that should surprise anyone. The more interesting question is what happens when Nintendo gets back to releasing, you know, its regularly scheduled, you know, software release schedule, for lack of a better term. Here's the basic math. So if you use the most conservative model that I put in the update, and you presume that as the release schedule begins to normalize and, and their big games you know, start getting you know, dropped with the release of the Switch 2, well, actually, give me a second. Let's reverse it. So if we chalk up the 2.1 and the 1.8 tie ratios of the last two years to the collapse in first-party software releases related to the delays of the Switch 2 that implies that the tie ratio, again, the amount of the average number of games an active user tends to buy per year on the larger ecosystem, that the tie ratio reverts to where it was, you know, when it was releasing 15 games a year, which was call it the three and the to three and a half tie ratio pre-pandemic. The impact to the equity value is pretty nuts. I mean, memory, if I recall, I believe... Uh, Early in the Switch cycle, uh, the tie ratio got above four, and I actually think that's probably what's gonna happen in the first year post the release of the Switch 2. But if we bump the tie to 3.25 games per year, as the software release normalizes, and I'll get to the impact of to the bottom line of you know kind of a step change increase in third party games that will now be released on the Switch 2 because the basically because of higher powered hardware but just from the normalization in their first party release schedule, that's gonna add another call it 1.5 to 2 billion in earnings through call it fiscal two or, you know, I think this is calendar year 27, but that shows an increase of value by approximately 30 billion just based on that normalization alone. And so, you know, we talked just now about its enterprise value today being 35 billion, And the fact that, you know, a normalization in the tie ratio would basically create an incremental 30 billion in equity value. I mean, call me crazy, but I kind of think that says it all. Now, what's even more interesting on the software front is that historically, because of underpowered hardware, basically because, you know, the switch or the OG switch is based on 2013 era cell phone tablet technology most of the call it marquee AAA third-party games that people love you know think Madden football uh FIFA or now it's called FC in soccer or football uh if for your you know uh, European audience or games like Call of Duty basically all of the biggest hits uh for all of the big multi-platform third-party games were not released on the switch they just the hardware wasn't strong enough yeah, it was
0: underpowered
1: yes right exactly yeah so let's just do a couple you know high level math so also think about this in relation to the well this is
0: your theory of the app store hiding in plain yes. sight right Correct. now now you get to sell it and take a cut of the distribution and you don't have to worry about all the r&d and the and, and the marketing of it and whatnot
1: yeah it's pure you know you basically have this inflection or explosion in pure margin Or nearly pure margin incremental revenue alongside the step change increase in some of the most popular games in the world that have, you know, basically were not available. There are a few exceptions uh, here and there, like The Witcher, there was a decent port, but by and large, some of the biggest and most important franchises in gaming were not on the Switch One. And
0: And that's a form factor that you can travel with pretty easily. Absolutely. Huh.
1: When we get into the competitive dynamics here going forward, it's actually far more interesting in what it means, but
0: Well, because what you what you're basically doing is you're ending up competing with Xbox and PlayStation for people's time, right? Correct.
1: Correct. And more than, So
0: why do you think they win that?
1: Well, because, you know, uh how do you differentiate a platform in video games? I mean, you know, nearly all games in general, kind of high level speaking, are let me go through the math and way to think through the impact to their you know bottom line, and then we can kind of circle back. But all of a sudden, but, but gonna...
0: wait, but underlying this math, you have to assume that people are choosing to spend time on this Nintendo platform, which I don't think is uh, I I believe right because you're saying like they're going to buy the games from Nintendo's app store. Yes, and I guess the but question you're is why
1: would why would someone and this is actually a great point because. You know, a big part of the Switch, too, is that it was, you know, Nintendo doesn't need raw graphical horsepower or any of these things to make great games. I mean, for them, it's about great gameplay and fun, and they could give two shits about photorealistic graphics and, you know, all of that kind of thing. So Yeah,
0: even the old school 2D games are fun, right? It's not like a graphics
1: issue. I've had some of the old games. I have every bit as much fun playing today as, you know, I did when I was 12. But you know the whole point is is Nintendo doesn't need raw you know uh, high powered systems to knock it out of the park with great games and great gameplay. I mean, or know, hasn't so,
0: right? Yes, Once you yeah. get into third party stuff, you kind of do.
1: Yes, correct, correct. So you know a big part, and this gets into the lessons that Nintendo learned in in a very hard way in the past with the debacle of the Wii U and how it was such a huge mistake to create hardware that basically can't be leveraged by third parties. And so one way to think about what the switch 2 is doing and this is not only to drive, you know, platform stability and increase engagement is to create higher powered hardware that is approximately in line with, you know, what call it, you know, the next gen systems are. And so this gets to your point of hmm. what's going to drive these game purchases and more importantly why would an Xbox or PlayStation user choose a Switch instead of you know sticking with the PS5 or the Xbox Series X or S, and that's a great question. And it comes down to I think two things because remember this is the first time that Nintendo will be marketing towards you know call it the hardcore gamer, the high end gamer, gaming enthusiast, whatever you want to call it, since the GameCube in in 2000. So it's it's literally been almost 25 years since they've tried to compete in terms of power with the other platforms. So, uh, what's the value proposition high level. And so if you think about that, you know, let me put it this way, say you're, you want to be the street, the Netflix of video game streaming in the future, and you want your platform to be differentiated versus the others. What's the one thing is
0: that- the answer is the answer here. Hang on. Is the answer here that you've got first party content that people want. So if you offer them hardware, that is capable of driving the third party games, they're gonna come to you because of your original content. Yeah, because for the most know, part. Because
1: you can buy two systems that have
0: Yeah, you're eliminating the need to buy two systems.
1: Well yeah I mean that in a big way, especially if the hardware is powerful enough to play current gen games yeah. with complete graphical and gameplay fidelity to the other systems. But the end of the day is is what does the platform not have? What does Sony and Microsoft not have and will not be able to get Kind of high level, and that's Nintendo games. And so if you're thinking about a consumer value proposition standpoint, you know, basically think about it like this. You can buy two systems that basically have the same games that the rest of them have, uh, or you can buy a third, which is Nintendo's, which will allow you to play all your favorite games in true fidelity to their intended gameplay that you loved on a Switch or on a, a PlayStation or an Xbox, plus Nintendo games that right there is a extraordinarily powerful differentiator relative to the other two. Now this is, you know, there's more to it. I mean, for example, with a switch, not only can you sit and play in your living room, but you can grab it, take it on the go. So in terms like use case functionality, not only does it have an edge in terms of content, but it also is far more flexible than, you know, traditional home-based consoles. So right there, competitively speaking out, well, looking out the next 10 years, I would not want to be in Sony or Microsoft's position for a few reasons. Huh? And there's incredible inertia in, call it the Xbox and PlayStation ecosystem. I mean, this would play out over a long period of time because most people play because that's where their friends play. And, and
0: But dude, what was wild, and I agree with where you're probably going with this, but what was wild is living in Chicago when the Switch came out it, you could see it around you. Oh, yeah. It was like people were on this on the L playing it nonstop, you know, and I was like, oh, shit, that's kind of wild, right? Because this is a form factor that has changed people's habits.
1: Exactly. And and it allowed I mean, it, it create it, it would, something that could never have been done before. And this gets kicked into overdrive with the switch, too, because at the end of the day, a lot of people, for example, are worried about, well, yeah, maybe they can play games that They can come out with all these, you know, Madden, FIFA, Call of Duty, but, you know, are they really going to be as good as, or look as good and play as good as the current, you know, the PS5 and the Xbox Series X? And for Nintendo to be a home run, it doesn't necessarily need that to be the case. It just needs to be powerful to play or to port those games in a way that doesn't ruin their gameplay. Like, so you're playing Call of Duty the internet lags and, you know, you shoot, you're shooting at people that aren't there, they're shooting at you, you know, like it. that could be a big barrier. And, you know, I think what's so interesting about a lot of kind of the news and specifically the delay that I was talking about earlier with the first party uh the negative compounding from the delay in the Switch 2 causing a delay in the amount of games they can release every year has to do with taking the node or, you know, basically Nintendo had the GPU that will be powering the switch to is call it, you know, five to eight times more powerful than the original.
0: Yeah. I remember you wrote about this.
1: Yes. So that's interesting in and of itself, but I think Nintendo delayed, you know, the, a big part of the delay in the launch of the switch was because they decided to move to a lower node, a four nanometer or five nanometer node that will actually save them money. I mean, this is a, a, very interesting, you know, conversation on its own. But the point is, is that you know, uh, from GamesCon and Tokyo Games Fest, so Nintendo has been doing side demos with various developers behind closed doors over the last, call it, six months. And you know, kind of the universal—I don't want to say leaks, but you know, the commentary from the developers that have seen it, basically, their mind was blown in that you know they not only match the current systems and you no know, load times and, and you know, all of that kind of thing that's becoming increasingly important in the high-end gaming world. But they did a demo of The Matrix Remastered, which was the same one that the uh, PS5 and the Xbox used to highlight just how powerful their new hardware was. And kind of the universal consensus was, you know, oh my God, these games look, feel, and run as good, if not better, than current-gen systems. And, you know, how could that be possible? Hmm. And and the answer is their partnership with NVIDIA. So I think on a base power level, the handheld Switch 2 will be as powerful natively as the Xbox Series S, which is the all-digital version of their next-gen system, and is, you know, kind of incrementally less powerful than the X. But the secret sauce here is the addition through their partnership with NVIDIA, to use their DLSS technology and ray tracing technology.
0: What does this mean? Explain this to a five-year-old, please. Uh, Me being the five-year-old.
1: So basically what DLS and ray tracing does is it uses AI to upscale uh, games that maybe run at, we'll call it uh, 780, uh, you know, basically run. Oh,
0: no shit. So you can compress it a little bit more and then the chip will uh, like your user experience is much better. Yes.
1: Not only that, not, huh. not, not only does. So, so that's how they look and feel like current gen games. Um, but not only that, and this is something that I think people also miss you add that AI to hardware-agnostic forms of AI that have already been built into the graphic libraries of the, you know, Switch One libraries. But if you buy a Switch Two, not only will you have access to all of these incredible, you know, third-party AAA games that have not been released, you know, historically, um, but the actual games that you bought on your, you know, original Tegra-based device will run and look vastly better because of the DLS and ray tracing technology.
0: Even on your TV they will? Yeah. Huh, and I can take it with me and it still looks dope.
1: Uh, yeah, correct, exactly.
0: Hmm, that is interesting.
1: Very much, and you know, so let's think about what that's worth, right? So, you know, there's a couple ways you can kind of broadly triangulate this thing, but. High level. Um, So, you know, one way super simplistically you could think about it is of the active user base on the Switch platform. Let's just simplistically assume 20% of that user base buys one, you know, single 3P AAA title a year. Call it 25 million units. Most of these games have had price increases uh, in the interim to 70, but let's use 60 per game. That's roughly 1.4 billion in gross revenue times that by the 30% eShop tax, that equals roughly 430 million in, in pure margin recurring revenue, less taxes, it's roughly 300 million, put the call it a 20 times multiple on that, you're looking at roughly 6 billion in incremental value creation. I think the better way to think about it, though, is I'm going off memory here. So feel free to double check this. but. I believe PlayStation and Xbox sell roughly 200 million third-party units per year that never come to Switch. So if Nintendo can get, a, say, just to be conservative, 25% of that, that's 50 million at, at the higher price point of 70 times the 30% each take rate, you're looking at about roughly 1 billion in cash flow, incremental cash flow from 3P AAA titles coming to the Switch too. Tax affect that, and you know, that implies roughly 15 billion in implied equity value creation. You know, and again, this is incremental. So, today's EV is 35 billion. We just talked about what happens when you know, first piece software the release pipeline normalizes and how that basically adds an incremental value of 30 billion to Nintendo's equity from that. uh, If you presume that. Normalization through the cycle. And then, you know, the addition of, I think, what are kind of obviously very conservative estimates in terms of the uplift from third party games that weren't on the Switch before that now will be that's another 20 billion. So when you talk about the future versus the past, I mean, we haven't even got into the Nintendo Switch Online, you know, and all of the other, you know, the IP entertainment uh, earnings engines like movies.
0: Hang on. All right. I I got you. I got you. This is very interesting. (laughs) And thank you for doing this with me. All right. So I see why you want to own such a large stake today, given your perceptions. Yes. How do you think about this? Let's say Nintendo doubles just from like what you've learned over time. How do you think about portfolio management in that case? Right. I mean, are you are you looking at this like this is a business I want to own forever and I think they have a bunch of optionality or is this a business that I mean, I guess what I'm really getting at is, is this like a never sell type business for you or do you start trimming it to move into other parts of the portfolio?
1: So this is a really good question because I think the hardest part of what we do is, you know, when do you sell? and especially when you start with such an outsized position to begin with. Yeah. I think the answer is, could this be a business that could continue to compound for the next 10 years easily? Will I continue to hold it as long as it's, call it uh, nonsensically uh, as disgustingly mispriced as it currently is? It'll be hard, it'll depend where it trades. Uh, But at the end of the day, I think, if you zero out almost all of the what I would call the high probability options uh, that you know are by high probability, I mean you know the odds of them landing deep in the money, uh, if you will, two, three years from now, it's hard for me to see any scenario looking out three to four years where the equity doesn't go up. When I think about tactically upsizing or decreasing the position, given what you know theoretically would, make it become a very outsized piece of the portfolio as a whole that is kind of a little bit harder for example
0: i mean at that point if that if if this all materializes you're doing pretty well for yourself and your lps are pretty happy so like yes so i i struggle with this right because like there's the theoretical well you should always optimize the portfolio all the time there's the other part of me that's like well if you're doing really well and you like the business you own and it's got options like i don't know that You know, sometimes optimization can be the enemy of good and sometimes good is good enough.
1: Well, it's like uh, a classic story, you know, you got to think about opportunity cost here, right? And you know, one, you know, familiar story that, you know, uh, always makes me chuckle with my grandfather is so, you know, and I think it was 1999, he decided to buy a lake house for the family. in a place called Okaboji, it's on the Iowa-Minnesota border. And he just agonized forever about whether he should sell Berkshire stock to buy some boats and jet skis. And, you know, you can't take it with you. Uh, The money's useful only insofar as you can.
0: Yeah, I feel like Munger would say, sell some damn stock and enjoy your life.
1: Correctly, correctly. That being said, my grandfather was hard to get flustered in a variety of ways. It was probably like a
0: couple million dollar jet ski. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, you have no idea. So the few times I saw my grandmother get pissed <laughs> was because his buddies would bust his nuts oh, because give they him kept shit like rolling... crazy. If
0: I was his friend, <laughs>
1: <laughs> they kept a rolling mark of how much the boat and the dock and all that stuff cost him. Oh,
0: those are good friends. You need people like that in your life. <laughs> and you know what? That's a good prom to have. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah. That's not so bad.
1: Extraordinarily lucky in a million different ways. So yeah. he never regretted doing it, but you wanted to agitate him, just remind him <laughs> of the opportunity cost of that sale. So I've
0: been dealing with it a little bit with this house, man. And like, look, it's very nice. Okay. But I've been going back and forth. I, like, I'm not 100% convinced I'm going to be able to afford it for my entire life. And I guess what I've gotten to is like, if I can give my kids a home that they're happy living in, and it's something that when they grow up, they're like, man, remember the house you know that we lived in and that was so happy? Then like, what the fuck do I have money for if I'm not going to enjoy it on
1: that? Dude, you're exactly right.
0: And like- Who's the, uh, I will teach you to be rich guy. Um, Uh, Napoleon Hill. No, no, uh, that's thinking grow rich, but, uh, this Uh. is, uh, Ramit Sethi is this guy's name and his whole theory of spending is like, spend where you want and cut mercilessly on everything else. And I kind of wrote down like, okay, the two things that I want to spend on are like health and family. To me, it's like, I, I, I'm i not giving up my trainer for now, and I'm going to spend on my kids. And if I got to sacrifice other places, so be it.
1: Dude, I think that's the 100% right way to go. And and I hope
0: they don't look at me and they're like, you fucker, you could have stayed invested and we would have had more money when you died. I hope I raise kids that don't say that.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. You and <laughs> me both. Uh, you know, and, and you'd ask me is, is far as is like thrifty and, and, and just the way that generation of call it, you know, men in Omaha, grew up. I mean, my grandfather very much cared about, you know, saving and all those things, but he also wasn't, he's also incredibly wise. I mean, again, you can't take it with you. And, you know, would, I look back now as a kid growing up, I mean, you know, so my dad comes from a family of 10. I have like 62 first cousins. My wife's family is equally as absurdly large. And I gotta tell you right now, the lifetime of memories, that we built, you know. Uh, I'm also lucky that I actually love my cousins. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I think that is, you know, very unique. But I mean, the amount of fun and memories, I mean, it's not even a question, uh, you know, at the end of the day. And and I have no doubt that my grandfather would would feel the same way. I think he'd be the first to tell you that it's not even close, that he would take the the memories and the fun and the joy a million times over, you know,
0: Yeah, I tell you what, man, it feels kind of trivial even talking about this stuff, given what's going on in the world. But, um, you know, I don't know. True.
1: Let's just put it this way, where we both have everything in the, you know, uh, in the world to be, you know, extraordinarily grateful. And uh, especially in the context of what's going on in the world. It's uh,
0: dude, it's wild. Um, I mean,
1: you know, you know what I would give speaking of talking about kind of the baptism of fire with the financial crisis? Just the ability to focus on investing bottom up, with no consideration to, you know, like I, I, I don't even know what that's like, you know, like my my entire career in some way has been the incremental stress of you know the fact that we did not deal with the issue the way we should have coming out of the financial crisis, zeroed out the equity, you know, given the bondholders equity in the banks. I mean, there's a variety of ways, you know, we could have, you know, taken the pain and moved forward, you know, under a much more, call it anti-fragile, you know, world going forward. And the opposite has happened with the QE, you know, and, and the unwinding of QE, you know, it's like, I can't remember a period where, in many ways, the macro didn't terrify me. And, you know, it still does today, maybe more so than ever. And, you know, what it would be like to be one of those... You know, to be able to invest as a you know a value investor, and not have to worry about you know uh, cascading financial collapse, given the interconnected nature of the uh, financial system. Um, I could go on and on and on, but you but know, do you
0: think like do you think Buffett and Munger truly don't like? I think they're very macro aware.
1: Oh, you and I am too. I'm not saying that they're not, or that they always, you know, that they've never been. Yeah. But from like a structural perspective, I think it is far more, you know, I, I think it's completely unreasonable today, given the unique certain, you know, dynamics associated with the world we live in now, not to pay attention. I think, you know, in pretty much every other era, it was intellectually defensible to, pay little to no attention or, you know, I just think uh, quality, you know, it's a different world now than it was back then.
0: I don't know, man. Like, I mean, World War II, the Great Depression. um, I mean, like, I got to think it's always been tough.
1: Well, so uh, touche. It has. Scary things have always been happening. I don't know. I I still think at the margin things like systemic collapse i mean you know it's like when we were talking the other day and i was uh, talking about the first time i arrived in new york as we were getting the bar ready to open i remember getting out of the cab and going to look for an atm and and thinking in my head you know is is cash going to come out of the atm and that's the type of thing i'm talking you know about where the I mean, granted, we've at least in the U.S. we've worked through a lot of stuff. But you know, it's, we've talked about before with Dan and Alex and everyone at Berkshire, it's like the the situation we're in with the regional banks. I'm not at all convinced. In fact, I'm quite certain. You know, we haven't seen the end of call it you know a, a successive series, you know, systematic collapse of a large portion of the regional banking system. I mean, I think it's a good thing we've been short. We've made a lot of money on this and we'll continue to hold our shorts until we can see some way through a viable way through, which, you know, I'm not sure I do. But that's, I, you know, again, it, maybe my powers of articulation are, are failing me here. But I think at the margin, there is something fundamentally more scary about the macro environment and What external events can kind of do to what we do for a living that wasn't there in the past. And maybe I'm wrong on that, but I certainly feel it when I'm putting my own and my investors' money to work. And maybe this is also just a kind of a a secondary effect of what I went through in the financial crisis that makes me feel it more than maybe someone else would. But I certainly feel it. And it's what makes me so, you know, kind of uh, maniacally focused on the downside, you know, in the end, the upside will take care of itself, but it's getting harder and harder to find names that not only are very high quality, but whether it's via idiosyncratic levers that they can pull um, or whatnot, but that should result in predictable growth and revenue and cash flow, whatever the future holds. And I think that is, at least for me personally at Crossroads, you know, that is something that is essential to what we do. I mean, I don't almost everything in our portfolio should work, regardless of what the market and the economy do. And it's a high bar. You know, I mean, I'm lucky because we can be concentrated. I only have to find one or two great ideas a year. Um, But, you know, I think it's just a lot harder to find things that should work no matter what than it used to be.
0: Well, this is not a unique thought. I'm stealing it, but it's one that makes a lot of sense to me. And I would name the person if they gave me permission. But they said, you know, if you look at the asset classes that have done well over the past, I don't know, call it 20 years, the one that really hasn't is like the long short hedge fund. And I kind of wonder if this isn't the decade of people being like oh we were under allocated to hedge funds like real hedge funds not like just as a payment structure right
1: (laughs) (laughs) right right well i mean i like we could have another call it you know like the value renaissance coming out of the you know uh tech bubble from 99 i wouldn't be surprised at all uh you know i think dispersion is kind of there i mean Now's a strange time in that, you know, it's like when people talk about, you know, or or frame value investing in like a FAMA French way. I believe you guys were talking about this the other day on the pod you did with Toby, basically talking about the value spread. I'm not at all convinced that, you know, we're gonna see a reversion of the mean based on call it small cap value. I mean, small cap value is my bread and butter. Don't get me wrong. And I think there is some of, if not the most extraordinary bargains. Available in the small cap world today that I've seen in my career, um, but this idea that we should see a cyclical reversion in um, you know value versus call it large cap growth for a bunch of reasons I don't buy it. I saw a really a super interesting chart the other day that showed that you know basically the 100 percent of the increase in gross profit from 2007 onward, you know, has been driven from tech. But I think there's a Outside of the way, you know, business models and the quality of businesses have changed over the last call it 40 years. You know, I don't even think uh, small cap value has is even outperforming more if you start from, you know, call it 1980. But, you know, gap metrics like book value are becoming increasingly less relevant. And you've had a qualitative kind of step change in the nature of American business in general. and almost all of that has been driven by tech. And you know you have this just incredible adverse selection in the small cap indices. I mean, you' got a ton of barely, you know uh, viable regional banks, just a lot of low quality businesses you know uh, that are affected by interest rates, you know, most of the indices are filled with crap uh, for lack of a better term. And so, you know, it, presuming that the reversion between, say, small cap, you know value and mega cap growth, Is going to automatically revert, you know, like this is some iron law of the universe, I think is deeply misguided. And I think when you look at, when you kind of peel underneath the uh, hood and you see the drivers of, you know, for example, like I said, all of the incremental gross profit in, you know, US corporate income or cash flows has been driven by tech and, you know, what we've seen there. That's a structural change that's permanent. Let's just put it this way. I'd probably much rather buy the Magnificent Seven here today than buy, you know, the Russell 2K value.
0: Mm, Going to break some people's hearts. How dare you come on this podcast October <laughs> yeah, 17th I mean, and say this.
1: I mean, hey, I think, you know, you pick your spots, you there's bargains of a lifetime out there in small cap value. But like dude, investing isn't meant to be this easy. Dude,
0: I don't know that people think it's that easy. I mean, I, you've, the, even since it got cheap, it's been hard to, I mean, this small cap has gotten punched and punched and punched. And I don't <laughs> think it's capitulation yet, but like it has not been fun.
1: Yeah, well, I, I agree with that. And there's obviously, you know, it's kind of like rubber band dynamic. You know, there are limits to how far I think the spread can go before an inevitable snapback. But do I think like the, you know, it will revert all the way towards the mean? No. And I think it shouldn't because of the structural reality of the way the businesses that compose these indices, you know, have changed. And, you know, I could totally be wrong about this. You know, don't take anything I say on macro. Uh, you take it as a grain of salt. But when I look at the businesses, uh, you know, you you back out the unprofitable ones. I mean, I just... They're cheap, but I don't think they're so cheap. They are unsustainable. You know, like the valuation is is fundamentally unsustainable, like I think is kind of the premise underneath a lot of people's hopes with respect to mean reversion. So it's not that there are not incredible mispricings in the small base. I mean, I think the changes in market structure since, you know, the financial crisis are both incredible and real in the sense that you know you add all the monetary, basically monetary policy and you know all of the you know QE angles to things, and you combine that with the rise of passive, you know you have a scenario where I think the market's discounting mechanism in the smaller and less liquid fare, you know uh, you know of the market has been completely broken. And you know if you want to know one of the things that I think I recognized early, in part from you know having my head chopped off uh, in a few scenarios was I think early in crossroads and you know after launching the fund uh, basically from day one, I was pretty aware that the discounting mechanism and the smaller micro and small caps, you know uh, less liquidity, all that was very, very real. And one of the things that had, you know I think tactically that has made a huge difference and saved me from a lot of the pain that other managers have gone through was that I realized it was broken when I started the fund. And the only way that I could kind of sidestep it without abandoning, you know, uh, what I think is and always will be the most structurally inefficient pocket of the capital markets, at least relative, you know, if you're talking about size in a vacuum, I still absolutely believe that's the case. But, you know, my the idea that I would buy a, say a, a well-run smaller microcap. Uh, run by an owner operator that, you know, owns 40, 50% of the float, has been buying back stock, you know, does smart and creative things, not only to reinvest in the business, but you know, will return capital to shareholders. You know, I would watch as businesses, you know, for kind of years leading up to this, would they be cheap. You know, let's say they were trading at, you know, as a above-average business that, you know, ordinarily should trade at an above-average multiple, call it 20, 25 times, trading at. 13 or 14 times, and I would watch them execute and, uh, you know, continue to do what they do. And I'd watch the multiple just compress and compress and compress and compress. Yeah. And so the tactical change or the way I kind of adapted and evolved was, you know, I kind of put in a hard bright line rule. Like, I will not invest in a small or micro cap name until I have a clear, hard, very distinct idea of what's going to work, make it work, and when. And you know, I know we're both fans of Druckenmiller, but you know, one of the things that
0: you probably more than I,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, so one of the things that that really kind of opened my eyes to this was Druckenmiller's emphasis on liquidity, you know, uh, driven catalysts.
0: Dude, did you see Lululemon on that index no, inclusion? No, it was up ten percent. <laughs>
1: Well, there you go. So it's Lululemon.
0: Like, come on. Hey, okay.
1: I mean, th- but this is God, this?
0: fucking kidding me on indexing. Well, so, but this is
1: this is what I'm getting. But at. who's
0: the dummy? Me, the guy that complains or me, the guy that that like I should be the guy that's like, OK, well, now I'm just going to play that game. Well,
1: that's kind of what I've done. I've, I I overlaid, you know, I, I need a hard catalyst that is going to result in this smaller business getting kind of swept up in the liquidity driven flywheel that, you know, has come with, you know, uh the rise of passive. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a capital flow thing, right? You know, and the cheap, you know, something, you know, it's like the old comment from um, you know, Graham about, you know, uh, uh or it was, I can't remember if it was Graham or Buffett uh that originally was responsible, but, you know, talking about how the market is in the short term, a voting machine and, you know, a weighing machine over the long term.
0: Yeah, long term, a weighing machine. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, this kind of period may be questionable, like what happens if no one shows up at the polls?
0: Huh. Oh, I like how you said that.
1: You know, you know like, like if there's no capital, you know, on a structural basis that, you know, even exists to drive price discovery, that's kind of this invisible hand dynamic that things... Are going to naturally revert to the mean, and that value creation will immediately be awarded or rewarded in my bread and butter space, kind of goes out the window. And so, the way I kind of switch things up was by buying things where I knew, you know, over a predefined time period, you know, quite literally what was going to make it work and when, and catalyst that by hard catalyst, you know, what I'm really talking about is this liquidity dynamic. And so, you know, one could be, you know, a business that is a pure play, very high quality, very coveted, you know, a massive amount of embedded kind of natural investor demand, but where there's been barriers blocking that demand from kind of flooding into the equity. So, you know, a a simple example would be an uplist to a major exchange. And in this case, you know, the business I'm thinking about was, you know, traded in London, you know, a knife island as uh, Dan or uh, Alex would uh, call it, um, you know, but it was on the in the process of uplisting to the Nasdaq. And so in this case, there was, you know, a clear situation where you had kind of uh, finite amount of sellers, you know, there and a barrier to investment that was, you know, basically holding back this avalanche of investment demand that would or would like to invest, but couldn't because of mandate restrictions related to the exchange they trade on, you know, uh, what have you. And so as that, you know, basically you skate to where the puck will be, you have a clear, you know, idea of what is going to make it work and when, you know, that uplist happens, the barrier to investment drops, and all of a sudden you have this massive amount of incremental demand for the equity that couldn't get through before that is trying to squeeze itself into a, call it a limited float stock with a very, a paucity of sellers. And, you know, very good things happen to the pricing action when that happens. And then that will generally lead to, as they get a bigger market cap, that'll lead to index inclusion, you know, and on the flywheel spins. Above all, you know, me kind of waking up to the reality of market structure kind of being broken, or at least the discounting mechanism in the space that I love the most and kind of pivoting towards only names that fit all of our qualitative and quantitative criteria, but that also have a hard liquidity-driven catalyst has made all the difference. And, you know, I don't think this is any blinding insight that I had, you know, but maybe it's better lucky than good type thing, but it has made all the difference in the world and saved me so much pain and stress, uh, you know, of dealing with situations where they execute according to plan, but they just kept getting cheaper Uh, You know, there's no kind of embedded demand for the equity and and the structural factors driving that are getting worse. It's not an easy game, uh, but kind of putting that rule in place made a huge difference in, you know, I think the outcome that the fund has experienced. And, uh, you know, frankly, I don't see any time in, you know, the near future where that's going to reverse. Uh, I hope it does. I hope, you know, kind of the sea change, I think, that we've gone through recently with higher rates uh, and, you know, all of that might fix those type of things. But I think we're dealing with a fundamentally different beast because of its structural nature than what we were dealing with kind of pre-financial crisis.
0: Well, that's kind of why I said to Toby, I was like, I don't know that I actually think that small and cheap is going to win. I there There are a few companies that are like small and expensive that, I mean they tend to be in healthcare and I don't really know what I'm talking about here but you know I I think that there is a chance that like okay the takeout value is higher but there's a reason that they're public and they're not I think that they've gotten compressed with the flows out of small I forget what Chuck Royce I I think I heard I have not verified this for myself I think Chuck Royce's assets peaked in excess of thirty billion, and are down to six now. So, if you just think about like if if he is the prototypical small cap investor,
1: yeah, that's that driving price discovery.
0: I mean, yeah, like dude, what's dude. gone on like the entire time when he's been redeemed on, like everyone else has been too, right? So it's just selling, selling, selling. Well, so
1: here's this this is an interesting question, and it's actually what I thought uh, a ton about. But you know, the truth is, I mean, when I graduate you know like so you know going back to the very beginning of my career when i think say let's say 2004 2005 not only were kind of value investors and small cap value investors king um you know in a variety of ways but you know the number of small cap value small cap in general you know mutual funds hedge funds when i think about i mean basically everyone's gone Like the the you know, if active managers in the small and micro cap space need to exist to set or drive price discovery, you know, especially you know, I mean, indexation in fact is you know fundamentally requires this premise for it to actually work. You know, what happens when there are no more small and micro cap? You know, like institutionally speaking, they've been erased off the face of the earth. I mean. Even now, raising money—it's like with the long-short hedge fund, you know. Example: raising money despite spectacular performance is an absolute nightmare. You know, I mean, people in the alternative. Why is that? I think in part because you know the pod shops have created a a good product. I mean, I think when you think about the leverage and you know, I mean, I, I could talk shit about them all day, but you know, the point is, I think on some level they've created a, a better product. I think the Dramatic underperformance of equity long short hedge funds uh, is, you know, a factor in this. Um, I think mo- the vast majority of hedge funds that were created, that have, you know, either since gone out of business, but that are doing the long short thing, really had no business doing them in the first place. So I think you've got a lot of kind of call it uh, pretenders that shouldn't uh, be running funds because they can't add value, you know, whether it's over a benchmark or or whatnot. I think that's created a a terribly sour taste in people's mouth because, you know, the returns have been terrible and they haven't delivered. And so I just think it's a a couple of things. But when I think about where is the capital that's going to flow into the small and micro cap space going to come from? You know, you mentioned Chuck, who I adore and, you know, that they peaked at 30 billion. I mean, they're really the last man standing. I don't know of any other material kind of mutual fund household name that even plays in you know the pond where I continue to fish in and you know a lot of our you know close friends and associates do and so that's part of why the you know uh, layering in a a hard catalyst that'll drive you know a predictable outcome in terms of the end game but it's also in part because you know the amount of capital that is Driving price discovery in the space has basically disappeared, and I don't see any equivalent replacements anywhere near on the horizon. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but all I know is that I'd say eighty percent of you know a lot of the funds that I used to admire or look at in the space, uh certainly coming out of college, are either gone or, you know, a tiny fraction of the size they were. And I think that's a huge opportunity for, you know, a fund like Crossroads, but because the mispricings can get so extreme, but I don't see...
0: Yeah, dude, unless, you're, unless you are on the other end of just, like, getting hit in the face with multiple compression and your LPs are like, what's going on? And you got to write these letters about how everything's going according to plan, but everything is flying in your face. <sighs> and then, like, you know, like, it's, it's a terrible way to live.
1: Yes, no, you nailed it.
0: And as long as everybody believes this, it's going to remain true. Now, I guess, if I wanted to argue the other side of it is, boy, if that belief flips, look at how much money can come into it.
1: It's like attitude in your hand.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're not wrong, but well, it's the old thing. Like, do you need to catch the first inning of something, right? You can maybe play in the third inning and still get a good part of the run.
1: Oh, most of the time I'd much rather, you know, if I'm looking at the risks in an investment and I have two choices, I can, you know, wait through kind of the last material risk to, you know, the thesis that I believe I've uncovered and you know, waiting through that you know event to come and pass, i.e., uh, so I don't run into a buzzsaw, causes me to pay twenty percent more uh, to have a vastly decreased risk profile from the downside. I'm happy to pay up twenty percent. I mean, I'll do it every day. You know, like I have no need to try and and catch absolute bottoms. And you know, thing that kind of mentality, or or worse, you know, making capital allocation decisions based on kind of abstract things like, uh, the value spread. They're not the type of bets that I want to make. I want, you know, the unlocking of value to be forced, uh, by concrete events that, you know, take the risk of what we're discussing out of the equation, because if I can do that, I don't have to just chug my, you know, uh, Mylanta, you know, pepto I mean, the heartburn, you know, and this is the other part of it. Since I've kind of adapted my approach, I can't tell you how many sleepless nights I've avoided. It just makes it so much easier when you don't have to depend on or, you know, kind of have a prayer session that this, you know, uh, historically extreme spread will somehow start to really compress. I mean, that's it's too abstract too far away from kind of a a direct line of sight to value the price to value gap closing that, that I need. And I think if you're betting or making investment decisions based on a hope in basically what is amounts to hope in this reversion taking place, and then, you know, you get your investments getting kind of swept up in the slipstream of that reversion uh, taking place. That's a hard place to be. I, I mean, someone was asking my advice, I'd tell them to, you know, uh, rework their approach and uh, do something a little bit more, you know, uh, simple. And, you know, it's funny, it's especially talking to Dan and Alex about this, given, you know, they were funded via Greenlight. You know, I mean, this is essentially what Einhorn has come around to, too, in the last couple of years. It's, yeah, the market might be a weighing machine over the long term. But again, what happens if no one shows up at the polls? What, what happens if, you know, you can't depend on incremental capital from, you know, the usual suspects flowing in to correct these mispricings? You know, you really need companies that are willing to do it themselves or better yet, you know, if they become a, a capital return vehicle where, you know, they're, they're continuously yeah. shrinking their shares, you know, the compressed multiple is actually a benefit. And a
0: huge benefit. Of yeah, that. you gotta just gotta trust him at the end of the tante. Yeah, right,
1: right. Yeah, exactly.
0: When I pushed back on the Drucker Miller thing, is I I read like the description of the pod, and 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 now that I know some of y'all better, I'm like fuck. That's kind of embarrassing that I wrote it that way. But you know what? What I somebody know. like Drucker. I knew exactly
1: what you meant.
0: Well, and like what somebody like Drucker Miller has kind of like stretched my thinking on is just, like, looking at the world through this kind of a lens and being like, okay, it's, uh, I, I don't know. you, I, I went from this naive sort of, like, statistically cheap is going to work, which I think it still can. You know, I think Toby's got a much more smart vehicle than I do, if, if that's going to work. But, like, to kind of thinking about, okay... I get that it's better in theory if your stock goes down all else equal, but like in reality, you do have to exit eventually and exiting into no liquidity sucks.
1: Oh my God.
0: You know, and (laughs) and like trees that fall in the forest are not fun to own.
1: No, no, they're agonizing. And trust me, like, I, I don't mean to make the impression that I haven't had my face ripped off Uh, More times than I can count. I mean, no, I
0: think you learn this by getting your face ripped off. Hell,
1: yes, you do. I mean, it's the only thing that makes it stick. And, you know, I'm sure we're very much the same. I mean, for a long, long time, I would have considered myself more of a um, Klarman esque investor where, you know, I would, you know, like one thing I don't do anymore is generally speaking, you'd have to put a gun to my head and pull the trigger before I'd buy some commodity treadmill to hell business. And, For years, I would get sucked in, you know, I think uh, before I finally took, say, oil and gas, you know, mining, extraction, things like that out of my playbook, I would, you know, get caught in these, you know, statistically cheap businesses that I would insist on a discount to asset value on top of earnings power. And I think that is kind of one of the things that differentiates, say, a Graham-Klarman investor. From say a Buffett, you know Munger, Greenblatt investor, it's kind of crazy. It took me I don't know almost ten years to learn this, but buying a business that has to reinvest every dollar earned simply to stand still, where the incentives are wrong with management, you know, you think you have this margin of safety and this NAV, whether it's you know proved reserves, you know, there's a lot of different kind of examples I could use here. And that we're trading statistically cheap relative to, you know, their earnings, you know, next year or the year after based on wherever the, you know, say the price of oil or gas or gold was. And I would think that I was basically being doubly safe. And so you hear about Munger and, you know, all their kind of quippy, you know, pithy comments about how it's better to buy a business, you know, a great business at a fair price. And it just stuns me. It took me nearly a decade for that kind of wisdom to really sink in. And it's in part because, you know, uh, growing earnings, you know, all of the things that that drive value. I mean, in the end, the most important thing, I think, with respect to a long-term outcome in any business is not only the size of the moat, but the duration of the moat and, you know, how predictable their ability to continue to earn outsized returns on capital are. While in theory, you know, the margin of safety from the discount to NAV and the low multiple, you know, like the qualitative element was completely missed. And and the older I get, the better I get, you know, I realized that 99.9% of alpha is qualitative insight, in particular, qualitative insight that isn't properly appreciated by the market. And that has made not only, you know, our margin of outperformance and, you know, our returns vastly better, but it's made my the stress, the day-to-day weight of, you know this job naturally, incredibly less crushing because, you know, time is on my side. And with a lot of these statistically cheap business, it's the opposite. And you know in the end, I just don't think it's worth it. you know, I don't have to buy everything. you know, I just need to know the limits of my own knowledge. And at the end of the day, Setting of extraordinarily high bar qualitatively for what we're willing to invest in. You know, it it has saved me in so many ways from making poor decisions that, you know are tempting. I mean, I still get tempted to dip into cigar butts here, you know, now and then. And you know, I actually owned a few things that I think are, that trade like a cigar brat, but I think qualitatively, they're dramatically, you know, the, these businesses are grossly underappreciated. But, you know, the point is, is that ultimately quality and insistence and a high bar on quality and and sticking with kind of maniacal discipline to that high bar, especially if you're concentrated, has not only, you know, resulted in far better returns, it's allowed me to sleep like a baby at night in a way that was just, you know, first 10 years of my career, it was a very different thing. I mean, I still did well, but was the return on invested brain damage and the collateral, you know, heartburn from owning lower quality businesses, you know, worth it? Oh, hell no. I mean, like, it's the best decision I ever made was was doing that. And it took me a long, long, embarrassingly long time to figure it out. But there hasn't been a three to five year kind of period interval since where not only the, have the returns gone up, but I'm just a lot happier and, and more at peace. And I think I can make, you know, my psychology is is always where it is when things get scary. So I can run into the fire, for lack of a better term, uh, without fear. And I think a big part of that is is an emphasis on quality above all.
0: Yeah, I've I mean, I've been thinking a little bit About, you know, the commodity space, just given the fiscal spending and some of the tightness there and and of supply. And and I keep coming back to like, dude, you have absolutely no insight that the market doesn't have. And the second it goes against you, you're going to puke second. (laughs) So, like, just don't do it. Now, Maybe, maybe, maybe it could make sense to give it to somebody else who I think has that insight who can hold it. But like, I am not going to be capable of owning those equities. I just know it.
1: it, Well, it's psychological torture. uh, And and so much, you know, this is why, you know, and I emphasized earlier about predictability uh, being so core to, you know, I mean, kind of the way I look at the way we invest is I want to find the highest quality business I can that is, you know, as absolutely dirt cheap as it can be looking out you know, two to three years, you know, how cheap is it relative to its medium term earnings power? And, you know, that was a, another piece of the puzzle that I think both Greenblatt and, and Druckenmiller really crystallized for me. It's, you know, I need to be able to predict what a business should earn at minimum two to three years into the future uh, with the very, you know, high degree of predictability, or I'm not going to touch it. And that automatically buys. That was
0: my biggest mistake last year was buying a business that when I, when I looked at myself in the mirror this year after living with it for a little bit and I was like, you really sure you think this thing's gonna be bigger in five years than it is today? And I was like, no. And that was, uh, that was a sad moment in the life of Brewster. <laughs> well, but whatever, you live, you learn.
1: Hey, I've had many of those. Honestly though, you know, that's the other beautiful thing about this business though, it's you know uh, knowledge is cumulative. You know, it's one of the few areas in life where age and having enough scars on your back, you know, almost guarantees you get wiser with time. And, you know, uh, it's like, you know, I'll continue to make, you know, the worst thing is, uh, you know, I I think I put this in our last letter. The only thing bad about it was a little bit different this than, you know, uh, learning or not learning from your mistakes is uh, basically the key I think is to actually learn from your mistakes and not repeat them again and again. But, you know, that is kind of, there's going to be some element of that that is always going to happen and it continues to do. And, you know, I focus a lot of time on, on really internalizing and learning from certain mistakes, but in the end, you're going to find yourself making the inevitably I think making the same mistake again and again. And, you know, I take solace in the fact that I have a, Natural pain point before I'm just like okay, you know, three roundhouse kicks to the face is enough, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, I don't need a fourth. I'm gonna take this knowledge and learn from it, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of mistakes to to get there. For example, the way I played, you know, I I think you know, so at Crossroads, maybe this is me getting feud in it, but you know, the way I've dealt with, for example, uh, I do think. Exposure to energy, you know, given the macro, something levered to, you know, call it the the energy ecosystem is smart. Um, but the only way I could think of to play it or that I could get leverage to that kind of outcome is, you know, I bought a bunch of ET, which I kind of think of as the standard oil of energy infrastructure in the United States. Uh, you know, I was basically bought it at a, you know, uh, it was right around 10, but the implied dividend yield that should, you know, have continued to grow and over time will grow was, I think, 15%. And given the predictability and the stability with that business, you know, I think I was able to, you know, I guess from a portfolio uh, management, you know, portfolio structuring perspective, get th- something on that would do well, no matter what, uh, but especially if energy prices skyrockets, and there's a lot of different scenarios where I can see that happening. And so, you know, ET was kind of uh, a way for me to kind of not make a similar mistake as I've had in the past, kind of do it my way where the predictability element is there in a manner that, you know, I think fits all of our quantitative and qualitative, you know, bars, you know, for an investment in the fund. But, you know, I mean, it's, I still think ET, I mean, I don't know what its dividend yield is now. I think it's slightly under 10. So I'd rather own, if we're look, you know, playing the what's the risk-free rate as, you know, uh, kind of a, a barometer of your opportunity cost, risk-free rates are 5%. If I can make double the risk-free rate, you know, in dividends every year, and the earnings mm. power of the business, you know, is not only predictable, but should continue to grow over time. That's something that I think should do well, regardless of whether rates stay high, whether they drop back to the floor. You know, kind of under all scenarios, I think that was a a way to kind of split the difference. But I should say, every time I've tried to split the difference in the past, it has uh, not worked out as well as I had, you know had hoped at the time. But I do think E T's worked out fine. And I, as far as the medium term future, I think there's a lot of visibility and a lot of reason to remain quite bullish.
0: That makes sense to me. I think, uh, you know, with some of those ideas for me, I I just need to like really own them and like not um, like if I own DT, I just need to be like, look, I own these assets. These assets are great. They're giving me cash back. That was the plan. Let the plan do its thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, but I mean, this is the benefit of, you know, people joke and they laugh about, you know, the, the books I've written on Nintendo. But I mean, that's kind of the thing with a, when you have a 25% position or you are super concentrated is I basically, you know, the amount, I know Nintendo, you know, it's incredible how, de- you know, my, my I could not feel more comfortable with this business because I've been able to allocate an arguably unhealthy amount of time to not only immersing myself in all the details, but, you know, <laughs> I've owned it for five years, you know, so... That, I think, is really the key. It's getting into the details of a business, knowing it as an owner would, and, you know, especially with something like Nintendo, where, you know, the famed Nintendo-speak uh, tends to shake people out like crazy because uh, they're either confused or they read things the wrong way. I mean, it, it's it's actually quite incredible. But if you've studied, you know, Nintendo-speak as long as I have, and, and you understand culture and and you know uh their past behavioral patterns and you know all of that kind of thing it makes it infinitely easier to distinguish between you know when say the stock's selling off for nonsense versus you know a reason that actually is you know fundamentally or technically valid. And I do think that investing at least as if you are an owner and you wouldn't you know potentially own it forever has been a big uh you know, it's a big part of our success, certainly, um because, like you said, things you think something's interesting, you don't know it very well, or I mean you know it well, but you're not obsessive about knowing it. Then the macro turns, maybe the cycle turns, something like that, you don't really realize how much you don't know until you've already gotten your ass kicked. Uh, and that's like a hard position to be in where. You know, If you're concentrated in things you do know extraordinarily well and you have a very clear line of sight in your head in terms of bridging what they're earning today versus what they will earn two, three years from now uh, with a very high degree of conviction, that's the type of thing that makes all the difference. At least it has for me, which is why whenever my portfolio starts to get bigger than, say, 12 to 15 names on the long side, I almost immediately trim it back. Because, you know, I don't know what, you know, this idea that someone could own 40 or 50 stocks and, and know them well enough not to get pretzeled on the regular, I just don't think that's possible.
0: Yeah. Well, especially not the way that you know your stuff. Which, speaking of which, because we got about, I don't know, 20, 25 more minutes. Can we do Pubmatic?
1: Oh, uh, sure. You know, or, you know, ad tech?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yes, my apologies. I, I just, when I read the Google paper... And that's what I'll refer to it as. I discussed it with you, and you were like, "This this should not be construed as a Google short thesis." That is oh, not yeah. what was going on. Totally. So I want to give you the opportunity to to clarify for anyone that's like me that may have sort of misunderstood the paper generally.
1: So I first I should give full credit to my uh, new director of research, uh, Daniel Prather. It's actually funny. Uh, we've been very close for five years, and I only learned I was mispronouncing his last name like a month ago. <laughs> which is absurdly ridiculous. Nonetheless, it's true. Um, so, you know, Daniel and I had worked together on various names for, you know, any number of years. And for a lot of reasons, uh, you know, I think there's a, a big symbiotic relationship there in terms of, you know, uh, kind of my sweet spot and his, and, you know, we've always worked together very well. And so when I was able to bring him on, you know, about uh, almost a year ago, it was a, a really wonderful thing to kind of make it official. But long story short is, you know, Daniel has a long history of kind of distinguished write-ups, uh, particularly in the tech space. You know, he was a former rocket scientist in a, a former life And you know, uh, when it comes to the technical stuff, he's always kind of blown my mind and you know, certainly been someone that, you know, when he tells me, when he pounds the table for me to look into an idea, you know, I normally do. But as we all kind of know, sometimes, you know, you're so absorbed or kind of involved in a name or, you know, a different part of the portfolio that someone could serve you up Berkshire Hathaway in 1965 and you'd be like, eh meh, and kind of move on. Well. In the case with AdTech and, you know, Magnite in particular, Daniel was very kind of kind and and patient with me, but, you know, he kept being like, Ryan, you know, you need to take a look at Magnite, you know, particularly the, you know, the antitrust case around Google. And, you know, he had owned what is now Magnite. You know, I think he first pitched me the name when it was uh, Ruby and it traded at a discount to cash. So he had owned the name for a long, long time, kind of knows ad tech like the back of his hand. And more importantly, because he had stayed up to date with all the incremental developments in terms of the antitrust case, was kind of acutely aware of how that case has evolved over time and, um, you know, the implications of that case. So I'll start out with Daniel basically saying, you know, hey, Ryan, take a look at, you know, the merits of the Google ad tech trial. uh, And I should probably begin here by noting, uh, there are two cases the DOJ currently has against Google. Uh, The first is in search, and that's ongoing right now. Um, But that is, uh, you know, we don't really have an opinion on that case, I think it could go either way. But, you know, Daniel basically got me to stop everything I was doing. And, you know, really kind of focus everything I had on getting up to date with the antitrust issues as it relates to Google and Magnet as a standalone investment. And so for a variety of reasons, I would not look at, we are somewhat agnostic on Google as a, you know, I definitely wouldn't, you know, there's a reason we didn't short it. And it's not a short piece on Google. What it is, is a piece that describes what happens if Google loses The second DOJ case and some details surrounding that. So, I think what did it for me to actually really kind of uh, stop everything I was doing and, and jump in was he had, you know, there's three or four very intelligent, very thoughtful investors that we both know well. And because I was being difficult in terms of my attention, Daniel decided to basically write up a kind of a thesis on the antitrust aspect of it. And do it in the old Benjamin Graham way, which is kind of like a riddle where, you know, company A, company B, company C. And he had sent it to all of those three, you know, the people that we both do in common that were long Google and very smart and very thoughtful. Well, when they came back and all of them, you know, uh, one of them uh, ghosted us. And, you know, we presume was because they were liquidating their position and then got back to us two days later. (laughs) (laughs) But, But... I got to go. Yeah, right, right, right. But every single one of them was like, holy shit. Uh, Thank you for that. You know, we had never put any real time into it. Uh, And so that got me into kind of the general thing, which is, you know, every Google long we talk to and, you know, I think Bill Ackman's, you know, uh, recent discussions his long thesis and and the latest person thing. It's I think it's kind of amusing that there is literally you know, the reason it's mispriced, you know, he says nothing about either antitrust case being an issue at all. And I think that is generally, you know, kind of the universal reaction when we brought it up with people has been, you know, uh, well, what do you think about the antitrust case? Uh, And they'd look at us like, dude, well, that's like, who cares about that? You know, it's irrelevant. Or, you know, the reaction would be in a few cases, well, you know, yeah, I'm aware of them and I actually hope it happens because when you break up the sum of the parts, they use the uh, uh, the classic standard oil example where you know uh, Rockefeller's net worth I think tripled or quadrupled after you know his trust was busted because the market was forced to assign and place a value on all the you know individual pieces that you know one that that unlocked an extraordinarily amount of value so basically those were one or one of the two answers that we got kind of universally, and this is from super smart and thoughtful people. Well, as I dug into the details of, you know, not the search case, but in particular, the ad tech case, and, you know, I was utterly shocked, but I, you know, what I found. In fact, all of Daniel's, you know, insistence and, you know, uh, continuing and thank God he kept with it. So I started to dive into all the court documents and, and a, a good buddy of mine, Tuan Tran uh, from Ten West, uh, Y combinator on VIC. I think a lot of people will know him from there, created a kind of an AI side hustle um, that he built internally himself and hired a, a guy to run it. But the two of us worked together to basically feed, you know, what I call AI C3PO in terms of of the antitrust with, you know, all of the DOJ's, you know, core documents, RPS, uh, all of Google's answers. And, you know, that was incredible because it you're know, really the first time, you know, in terms of use cases where I'm not sure I would have been able to ramp the learning curve. It would have taken me 10 times as long as it did. It was, it was really amazing. In fact, I can, uh, when this goes live, I'm more than happy to uh, post an example of it underneath the pod so people can play around with it. but that was what allowed me to really dig into the details of the case and long story short, you know, past precedent in terms of antitrust law, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with being a giant corporation. There's nothing wrong with being a monopoly, you know, where antitrust law comes into place is when, you know, a monopoly and is is using their market power via various anti-competitive measures uh, to extract economic rent or profit unfairly, um, you know, where they're basically just lighting the torch to their competition. And so it is when you dig into that aspect of, you know, the Google antitrust trial and that, you know, the power of the DOJ's case really comes to life. And, And I can remember being very confused by the Microsoft Activision deal and a lot of where the government was coming from at the time because it just seems so silly and absurd on, on several levels. But, you know, going through this part, all of a sudden, all of that made a lot of sense. Now, I, I think that, you know, DOJ was, you know, or the the antitrust issue there was was silly. And, and you know, I, I didn't change my mind on, you know, like the odds of the outcome. But those two things kind of really crystallized to me what a case that's going to win uh you know historically the doj doesn't take cases unless they're basically absolutely certain they can win and uh our buddy andrew walker just came out with a i think a fascinating piece on a sea change in antitrust laws that i i would recommend everyone read but i think google is the opposite of that kind of general sea change which is i think the odds that the doj will win against google are not just possible, I think it's actually probable. And, you know, I would point you to the piece to kind of go through and and get a a feel for the arguments to why and potentially use AI's, you know, antitrust C3PO to maybe ramp the learning curve on our conviction there. But the point is, it wasn't a short on Google. It is actually a long on the beneficiaries of who will basically absorb all of the profit pool should Google lose and should they have to basically separate their ad tech stack from their larger ecosystem, which in a lot of ways is equally as important or as powerful to Google's, you know, moat and earnings as search is. And so one thing I would point, you know, why be cautious as a Google long is, you know, you sever the network effect, you know, that comes from their market position and, you know, in advertising and their ad tech stack. And there's considerable, you know, I'm not so sure that the pro forma earnings power isn't, you know, uh, at least temporarily, if not permanently impaired on that side of things. So, you know, who knows about that. But here's the insight and the thing that matters. So without getting into the details, and trust me, ad tech is so complex, it can make your head uh, explode. But, you know, the gist of it is, is if Google loses, we're talking, you know, all of the profit pool, there's a direct linear relationship where if they lose, there's going to be tens of billions of dollars, you know, up for grabs. And that revenue, you know, should it be ceded to the remaining players, Magnite above all, is worth, call it a 5x, you know, kind of inflection in revenue. Uh, Basically, if this happens you know for certain that you know this group of companies is going to benefit and so the question is is kind of trying to quantify what that means to each of these companies bottom lines should it happen and so with magnite you know this isn't a short on google it is a fundamental bet bottom up on magnite you know irrespective of whether google wins or loses so you know think of it as a 50 cent dollar but should they lose, which again I think is not just possible but probable, if you buy the leaps, you know specifically, and it's even uh, the upside is even more kind of mind-bending. But if you know you buy the leaps, looking out in 2025, you're looking at basically 100x upside. So you know uh, conceptually, I think of it like this: we get to buy the market leader in the ad tech space on you know the sell side of the aisle at, you know, what I think is a 50 cent dollar, and then we get a basically a hundred bagger free option tossed in for free that I think is likely to materialize. Now I'm sure a bunch of people are listening to this and they're thinking, well, how do you get comfortable on the timing, right? These things could go on forever. And in fact, you know, at least with respect to the first DOJ trial that Google is going through if they lose, you know, there's going to be an appeal and, you know, who God only knows when all of that will get wrapped up, you know, in the end. Well, that's what makes the second trial so intriguing. And this is another key piece of it is the second trial takes place in Virginia, which is called the rocket docket. And what is so important here is that, you know, this particular jurisdiction has base is known for how fast it is to a conclusion. So, Historically speaking, cases in Virginia, you know, the rocket docket have, you know, lasted between three and six months, but the average is about three and a half months. You know, there are no real exceptions to this. This is where you're at. You're going to get a hard final decision that, you know, essentially can't be appealed by let's call it late summer of next year. So that's the other key piece of this. It's not just the incredible accretion to the remaining players that will mop up all billions in profit, you know, that is seeded by Google as part of losing. But it's the fact that we have a predefined timeline where we know the case will be wrapped up and done. uh, And there is plenty of room between the time that that case gets, you know, basically settled and the time the options expire for the kind of absolutely transformational secondary effects or the implications of that ruling for the market to wake up and start to price, you know, Magnite in particular, price that in, you know, given the obvious and, you know, very direct implications that are certain to happen should Google lose. So I don't know, that was kind of a long ranty.
0: <laughs> explanation No, it's good. It's good, man. I, I mean, when I read it, I was like, I don't see anybody else uh, talking about this. And then I pinged you. And then I got the email back that was like,
1: I'm the guy that had you had dinner with. And I was super happy well, that was it was fun. you. It was a fun night. Yeah, right, right. And here we go. But so that's what's unique. It's a small yeah. position for us. All credit is due to Daniel. You know, he's been a stone finalist and won VIC's idea. But in terms of the sheer creativity, you know, because if you think about it, just by, you know, like the the odds that, you know, the DOJ wins, or at least what's being discounted in the stock are, you know, somewhere between zero and 5%. I mean, basically, you know, the market has not discounted any of this value creation whatsoever into Magnite stock. Uh, I think that is a huge mistake. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what the true odds of, you know, Google walking away with the W or an L are. I know they're not zero. And if you dive into the details of the case, I think most rational people, and we talked to a variety of uh, uh, antitrust experts, I mean, there was a lot of due diligence that went into this. And honestly, at the end of it all, there wasn't a single contrary view or you know anything that touched the premises of, of kind of, of the larger thesis here, which basically everyone agreed to. So the fact that he not only was familiar with, you know, all of the details in the case, you know, some of the stuff that was released uh, was so embarrassing. The judge allowed them to reseal it. You know, we go through that in the piece. But uh and this is bad. I mean, puke inducing grade A scumbag type of, you know, actions on Google's part. Should they win? You're looking at basically a 100 bagger with the leaps. You know, most interestingly was, you know, we did it not as a piece to say, hey, here we are, we're short Google, you know, it's just, it was more about getting, sowing that seed of doubt into existing longs. And because remember, the piece is about, hey, guys, if you think this, the probability of of a loss here is zero, you might want to, you know, educate yourself because that is almost certainly wrong. I don't know what will happen, but I know the odds priced into a win here are, are wrong. But, you know, simply by sowing that seed and getting people to realize that, hey, there's a really cheap way you can hedge your Google position against this type of negative outcome by taking a, say you got a 10% position, taking a 1% position in these leaps. Yeah, it's just very clever because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more, more people wake up to this idea that, oh my God, I can toss and turn and worry about this all day, or I can just buy Magnite calls and sleep like a baby that kind of, you know, that's all they need to do. And if even a tiny, tiny fraction of a fraction of the capital allocated to Google, you know, makes, I think, the intelligent decision to hedge out this very easily hedgeable risk through a basket or of of ad tech peers that are likely to benefit or the way we've chosen to express it, which is, you know, through an individual bet on Magnite, which is the biggest, the biggest of all the beneficiaries and that we believe should benefit disproportionately, you know, if you do that, you're going to drive up the value of our calls. And so, you know, we don't even need a a loss, if you will, uh, for the idea to work out. I mean, I think the idea from a bottom up basis is going to work regardless of that outcome. But the way we've kind of set up the position and the way we've used kind of the truth to wake people up to the obvious, I think is extraordinarily clever. In its early days, won't be till the end of next summer where we know, you know, the outcome here. But I guess the only way I think we lose is if Netflix steps in and buys Magnite for their own, you know, CTV purposes. But that's a totally different thing. If they they paid 100% premium, you know, the leaps would expire worthless. But uh, I do think there's enough time to where heads we win, tails we don't lose. And it's, you know, not every day you get a a free 100 bagger. Option tossed in for free, especially when that option is uh I think more likely than not to land in the money
0: yeah, no that's I mean, I liked the way you were thinking about it, and I wanted to make sure to ask about it because I would be lying if I said that I fully let my brain get there because when i I read your paper, I was like, Oh, this is something that I haven't uh fully considered <laughs> and really need to do work on and i I almost didn't get to I almost didn't get to the end, so I wanted to give you the chance to um to lay that out. Look, man, I know we had more to cover. I'm sorry that uh, I didn't keep the conversation going on a faster cadence, but I'm, I, you know, I enjoy talking to you. You're welcome on any time. And I hope you had a decent time.
1: Hey, I, I loved it. You know, like I've said before, uh, your podcast is far and away my favorite. And it's an honor to be here and for you to let me rant about Nintendo or, or whatever it is. Uh, I always uh, not only love listening to your shows, but... Uh, Love catching up and and talking and, hey, I'd be glad to come back uh, anytime you want me. So just let me know.
0: All right. Well, be careful what you wish for. (laughs)
1: Uh, Always, brother. All right. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Bye.